when Dave Timms was here back up and through the late 80s, he brought in a guy nobody had ever heard of at the time. He would do, he would do the concerts that nobody was doing. And he brought in a guy nobody ever heard of named Stephen Curtis Chapman. <laughs> Probably with a mullet back then, too, I bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blonde, little short blonde dude with a you know, <laughs> mullet. And, and it was just him and a guitar. Really? In the high school gymnasium. And the place was packed. Nobody. We drove up from Brookings. You know, really? we got a carload of people and drove up from Brookings. And we were like, yeah, you know. He, he left that concert, went to Nashville, because he was nominated for a Dove Award for the album More to This Life, mm-hmm. where he won like a whole slew of awards, then went on and won a Grammy, then went, and that was it. And he, I mean, he's kind of a nobody nowadays. So. Right, right. Yeah, he's kind of back to being a nobody. <laughs> right. and, yeah, nobody. Well, I think it's Steve crazy Curtis he's who? just doing... Like he's, I think he's in the middle of a huge solo tour. Yeah, him and a guitar. Yeah, that's just and, kind of and crazy honestly, if you think about that. Was that. it was brilliant. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe. It. I was just like mesmerized wow. for you know two hours. This guy, this guy and a guitar, hmm. and uh, he was he was excellent. But yeah, that was Millbank for me back in the day. That's crazy. This is the interview podcast on the Why Millbank Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Craig Weinberg, sitting in the studio today with Bill Vanderbush. Hey, uh, Greg. Hi, how are you? Thanks for coming in. Thanks, man. All the way from, uh, did Dorian blow you up here? Is that the deal? You know, we, we thought did we were going to get, get, we were battening down the hatches, but if if the news hadn't told us an apocalypse was happening, we would not have known it where we live. But, you know, we feel super bad for the folks down in the Bahamas. And uh, yeah, you know, we've just, we, we get a lot of, we get a lot of people come into central Florida from last year, it was uh, Puerto Rico mm-hmm. when Hurricane Irma came through this year, Hurricane Dorian has brought a lot of people up from the Bahamas and. But, you know, in Central Florida, you know, Walt knew what he was doing, putting his theme park in Central <laughs> right Florida. In you know, by the time the hurricane gets to us, it's yeah. just rain. So, Well, I had a, a friend up here from the Orlando area last week. I talked to him. And at the time, early on in the projections, they were thinking, this thing's so massive, it's going to cover the entire state, yeah. kind of suck water up from both the Gulf and the Atlantic. Yeah, we get, um, we get uh, every time we get a hurricane, uh, you know, life just goes on and we don't, we don't really, you know, do a whole lot uh, about it until until it just begins to hit. You know, it's it's like uh, it's like being stalked by a turtle. That's kind of how it feels. Is <laughs> you just it's just not coming quick, mm-hmm. and uh, and so uh, we get texts and calls from all over the nation from people saying, you know, are you guys okay? Are you surviving? Are you alive? And so <laughs> I realized the news is out there, yeah, painting a picture that's uh, that's real grim. So what town are you in? We're in Orlando. We're actually oh, you're South, in Orlando. South Orlando. Okay. In a town called Celebration. Why did I think Pensacola? I'm sorry. I don't <laughs> it's know a little ways away. That. That's, a, yeah, that's way up north. <laughs> uh, no, Celebration is a town that Disney built like 25 years ago. And so you picture... Did picture, they name it as well? They did. They did. They called it Celebration and they built it. It's like a movie set. Uh, picture picture if, uh, if the Truman Show and Thomas Kincaid really? got together and had a kid. That would be Celebration. It's, it, it is a little weird. It's like, a, it's, it's like the perfect ideal community. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. What it do is, you do? What's your job? I, I'm, an, I'm a pastor of a Presbyterian church, so, um, it's, uh, which is interesting because it's not my background. Presbyterian is not. But the majority of people, I think, in our church are not Presbyterian. It's just a community church right in the center of town. It was, um, it was planted there. Uh, the Disney company contributed to it. The Disney family contributed to it. Uh, the Presbyterians contributed to it. It's, so it's, it's a real genu- genuine community hub. So we have a lot of people that come, you know, that, uh, that are there for networking. They're there just to, you know, 
oh, the music is nice, you know, and the sermons are short and all that stuff. But what's happening is is really remarkable right now because we're we're seeing an outpouring of the Lord's uh, presence in a way that's tangible. I mean, a lot of people that have come to the church for years as just part of this, just the community church, what we do. But now they're starting to actually have encounters with God, and that's creating a whole new world of possibility. So, is that a new thing in the Presbyterian world? You know, the Presbyterian uh, denomination itself has a lot of revival in its history. Charles Finney was a Presbyterian, mm. and the Finney revivals up in uh, northern New York back in the day were just, I mean, were just outstanding in, in terms of, uh, you know, people being brought to Christ by the tens of thousands, you know. And so there was a real move of the Holy Spirit, you know, through the Presbyterian denomination uh, back in the founding of the country. But here, here we here we have today Presbyterians, uh, along with United Methodists and Lutherans and various what whatnot have been kind of relegated to being denominations that are mm-hmm. just sort of traditional and passed over and uh and and they get labeled as dead a lot and that would have been me you know uh back in the day i would have labeled the presbyterian church well it's dead you know yeah. it's just a dead dry church and those are words that we attach to these things a lot without stopping to think about the fact that and god's really dealt with me about this but without stopping to think about the fact that within these churches are people that uh that may in fact just on their own, the relationship with God be developing, crying out for a move of the Holy Spirit. The Word is coming alive to them. They're they're listening to podcasts and a whole of, a lot of other sources and stuff. So they, you know, they're planted in these places and they've got hunger and God responds to hunger uh, in, in a in a really dramatic way. So I've gotten to the point where I've kind of had to repent for my attitude towards some of these traditional churches <laughs> because you know the first time that you see you know people getting filled with the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit, saved, healed, delivered in a traditional church, you realize oh. God has not left the building here. He's He still cares about these people. How long have you been there? Uh, coming up on three years. So still pretty new. What did you do before that? So 25 years I've been a pastor somewhere. I was a pastor of Assembly of God, uh, through Assembly of God churches for uh, for about a dozen years. Mm-hmm. Like uh, early on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was actually my first pastorate was Assembly of God. Is that your background? No, not not really. Because your dad, Henry, correct? Yeah, he was Wesleyan Methodist. But okay. then he got filled with the Holy Spirit when I was uh, I was about five years old. Yeah, <laughs> four or five years old. And uh, and that was the end of the, his mm-hmm. Wesleyan Methodist years. And he had put a lot of years into that. And then he just went independent, you know, charismatic. You know, he, he traveled everywhere and preached for anybody who just had a hunger and a, a love for the gospel. So I grew up in this real eclectic, uh, I really didn't know what we were. I went to an AG youth group in Brookings. Uh, South Dakota here, and um, and you know Assembly of God youth camps. I went to independent charismatic youth camps. I went to you know just I, I was a part of everything. We you know we did some stuff with YWAM, and so you know there was fundamentalist evangelical background, uh, some spirit filled, some not. You know so so I felt like I had this wide variety of 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 treasure chests to choose from. You know, and I just grabbed what was valuable from all of them, and just and they became a kind of a part of my my own personal spiritual makeup. How often do you travel? Oh my goodness! Are you on the road a lot? I am. Yeah, yeah. They 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 give me the freedom to travel. Say, how do you do that and be and be a pastor yeah. as well? I've got a great team. I got an amazing, amazing team. And and there's there's two of us that pastor the church, and so we uh, we kind of share the duties of of preaching, teaching, um, different things like that. We have a school of ministry, run five services a week, and um, I have a relatively large congregation that works with a relatively small staff. But I think the reason that we can do it the way we do it is because we're in a we're in such an idealistic community. It's filled with uh, with dreamers, 
Disney Imagineers and, and people who I would consider to be problem solvers more than they're problem makers. Mm -hmm. And so if we ever have something needs to be done, we can just, you know. <laughs> it's going to get done. We could just say, hey, you know, <laughs> hey, we need uh, we need a few people to do this. And boom, suddenly we've got all these people that step forward and uh, and make it happen. So they make they make my life a lot easier. And mm -hmm. we, we call ourselves a local church with a global vision. So we feel like that there's something God's doing in our community that needs to be exported, which is one of the reasons why traveling is a, is such a priority. And, you know, I, I never call anybody to say, hey, you know, can I come and speak in your church? It's something I've just not done. Um, but but people continue to reach out and say, would you come? Would you share in a conference? Would you share an event? And typically when I go and share in a conference, then uh, there's there's a lot of pastors and things there. So we build relationships and one thing leads to another. Next thing you know, you've you've got these churches that are calling you and, and inviting you to come and speak. So people often will ask, like, how do I do what you do? Mm -hmm. And I have no idea what to tell them. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't know really how you get started doing this. What is the central thrust of your message, I guess, when you, when you do go out? It, it, is it all the same? Does it center on one, I mean, outside of the reality of the gospel, but mm -hmm. does it center on one thing? Or Yeah, I, I, would, I would call it uh, living, living the reality of our reconciled union with God and Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, oh, that's uh, concise. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if, I was to, if I was to break it down into, uh, into one thing, it's... It's uh, you're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he did that. And what does it look like to live the resurrected life? Well, it's not that we're distant or separate from God anymore. It's, it's that there's no distance and no separation. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 20, it says, In that day you will know I am in the Father, and you are in me, <clears throat> and I am in you. And that day is now. Uh, that, that's the moment that we're standing in. Uh, there, there's something about that, that that carries a lot of weight for me, because I used to push that verse off into a future time period for which I have no present responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, and then studying the chapter in context, you realize the day that he's speaking of is the point at which he's beaten death and raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit has come upon the church. Now at that point, everything that he declares as far as that union goes becomes, becomes a possibility, a reality for us. And so uh, I, I guess I've spent probably the last eight or nine years asking the question of what does it look like to live this reconciled union with God where there's no distance and no separation? And it begins with just completely erasing every consciousness of distance and separation so that I, I realize I never walk independent. I, I never walk alone. And, and that changes the way you see everything. It changes the way you do life uh, you know, I don't, I don't argue theology near as much as I used to because I realize basically all, all we are is just sons and daughters just basically arguing about what dad is like. Mm -hmm. And so when it, when it all comes down to it, really the, entire, the entirety of all of our conversations typically comes into how good do we believe he actually is. And, uh, and I, so I live with this real simple motto, and I don't have a conclusion to this. I just live with the simple motto that uh, God is always better than I think. And I can't imagine him better than he is. And that's not to draw theological conclusions by. It's just to live with this constant awareness that nobody can take better care of me than dad. How did you come to this uh, realization, I guess? Uh, <clears throat> because a, the, the, that's I a mean, great question. This is not ubiquitous in Christianity. No, I... I studied the church fathers a lot, and I realized that there's a lot of talk of this. You know, back in the back in the uh, uh, back in the third, fourth, fifth century, you, you begin to have writers that that are really speaking, teaching, writing about the the just the overall victory of the cross, the mm -hmm. Christus Victor model of 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 
what I would call new covenant theology, better covenant theology. And, uh, and, and it was lost for a time, you know, by the time, uh, Augustine or Augustine, depending on where you live in the world, um, <laughs> rolls around and starts uh, and starts bringing the foundations of modern evangelicalism to us. Uh, by the time that that pretty well takes over, we go back to a pers- perspective of distance and separation, and in a sense, we almost go back to an old covenant perspective. And I understand the motivation; I think is good because you know people you know uh, people start to in- introduce a discipline into their lives as part of their discipleship, like I need to do these things. Mm-hmm. But then religion becomes about what we do as opposed to who we are. It became more about a, a, a work as opposed to an identity. And and I'm dumbing this down, condensing so much here, but, it, you know, I think for, for me, it came to a point where I suddenly had this, this uh, realization that if it is not the grace of God alone that saves me, I am out. I'm, I have no, I have no hope at all except for the grace of God. Once I begin to rely and, and rest in that point uh, where nothing I have done, no prayer I could ever pray, no, uh, no amount of repentance that I could ever put on display, not that I don't think it's important, it is, but I'm saying no amount of repentance that I could put on display, no work that I could ever do could possibly ever cause me to ever be able to say, I got saved because I did such and such. And whenever I ask people like, you know, so how did you come to salvation? The typical response begins with the phrase, well, I did, or I prayed, mm-hmm. or I, and I'm thinking, you know, salvation doesn't begin with us. It's initiated by him. First uh, Corinthians 1.30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So, so I begin to realize, uh, I, I didn't do this. I didn't save myself. He saved me single-handedly. He didn't need my help. He invited my agreement. And without that agreement, it's as if I'm, I'm walking around as if nothing ever happened. So I begin to manifest the fruit of what I believe, which is, I think, where the, the case where most people are these days is they're walking around believing a lie. They're believing something about themselves absolutely isn't true. Well, even as a believer, I, I think I believed a lie about myself, and that was that I got saved because I did. And if I did anything, it was simply to say okay to his yes. Right. You know, I just came into agreement with what he believed about me. I surrendered everything that I believed to just come into alignment with what he believed. And that was at the point, I I had been a pastor for years, but I was working all the time to try to get close to a God who, according to the scriptures, had taken up residence in me. And I would have believed that I had the infilling of the Holy Spirit in my life or upon my life, and I could see the gifts moving out. But if you would have asked me, how close are you to God? I would have said, "Eh, some days I feel closer than others. Mm -hmm. But the idea of union felt... I mean, it felt heretical because God was holy and I was more conscious of my sin. I was more conscious of my unrighteousness than I was of his righteousness and his holiness. So when I begin to realize, wait a minute, I've got to let go of the sin consciousness. I've got to let go of, of every perspective of my unrighteousness. And if the Holy One has chosen to take up residence in me, that, sh- that should change everything about me. But it doesn't change me because suddenly I decide not to sin anymore. It doesn't change me because I decide to suddenly do everything that's right anymore. It changes me because I come to a place of complete and total surrender to say, God, I can't, I can't exist in this life without your presence, without your voice. Uh, the, the origin of that, uh, I'll tell you, uh, here's the point at which it, it became alive to me. And that is I felt the Lord uh, directing me to go back to Genesis. And I'd left, I had left a lot of these things 
behind, you know, in Old Testament studies, I just relegated to history. But I felt the Lord telling me, go back to Genesis, and I want you to study your origin. Because I was enamored with original sin and the sin nature. I mean, I preached on it a lot, and I felt like that became kind of an excuse for not only my own life, but but the lives of the people that I pastored. I mean, well, you know, you got the sin nature. Well, you know, we got original sin to deal with. And I felt like God dealt with me and said, you know, uh, sin was not the origin, Bill. Or righteousness was. Mm-hmm. In other words, you began in me, and I've never been a sinner. So if you began in me, then original sin is not your origin. Original righteousness is your origin. So then, then this this. So does the, that make the original sin theology n- not correct? No, because I I think that sin uh, sin does have an origin, mm-hmm. but when we take and and put the English term original sin to it, we start to I think mistakenly believe that sin is our origin too. Original sin, well, that's the origin mm. of all things, that sin becomes the origin of all things. So I, I think it's just an understanding of the uh, understanding of the phrase. And, and that is that, you know, original sin is not our, our starting point. Original righteousness is. So I started, I started going to, okay, if, if I go to Genesis and I look at the way that God creates, I started seeing this differently than I'd ever seen it before. I go back and I reread uh, the, the, the story all over again, and this is the way it kind of unfolded for me. I started noticing the way that God creates is he creates a dead environment. And then he speaks to the substance of the environment that he's just created to produce life that is meant to live, exist, and thrive in that environment. So, for example, when he wants to make fish, he talks to water. He's already created it, so now he says, let the sea bring forth. And everything that's meant to live and move and have its being in that environment Mm -hmm. comes forth and starts swimming around (laughs) doing what it does. When he wants to make plants and animals, he talks to the earth. He says, let the earth bring forth. Mm-hmm. So he's speaking to the substance of the environment from where that life is supposed to thrive from and, and within. But when he makes man, everything changes. And you see God saying, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Well, we know he's not, he's not talking to angels here because you're not made in the image and likeness of an angel. So when he says, let us, you're seeing God as Father, Spirit, and Son having an internal dialogue here. God, an other-centered, self-giving relationship of love, is having an internal internal dialogue and say, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, not as the fourth member of the Trinity, but to do something very unique that had never been done before. And so then God does something most unique, and that is that he goes to the environment, that dead environment that he's created, and instead of speaking to that environment, he scoops up dirt from that environment says, let us make man in our image. Then he breathes his spirit into that dirt. In that moment, man becomes a living convergence zone between heaven and earth, or the soul that glues the spirit and the physical together. So kind of to go back to the beginning, when he makes fish, he talks to the environment of water. When he makes plants and animals, he talks to the environment of the earth. When he made man, he spoke to the environment of himself. So when when Paul says, and he grabs a Roman poet and says, hey, heads up, one of your poets got it right. In him we live and move and have our being. He's not joking. I realize this, all these songs that we sing, you know, you are the air I breathe, you know, all that stuff. That's, that's more than metaphor. It's more than poetry. I, I was built, we were created to live and exist and thrive in the presence of God. So then modern theology will say, well, well, okay, that, that was Adam. Adam's made in the image and likeness of God, but we are made in the image and likeness of Adam, which is why we bear the fruit of the fall. That's theology I would have preached, you know, 20 years ago without a, without a hitch. Until you get to Colossians 3, where Paul says, put off the old man and put on the new man that's made in the image and likeness of the one who created him. So you begin to realize, wait a minute, this new covenant now, 
has restored us to that place of reconciled union with God, where the the innocence of of Adam's existence now becomes my becomes my my present state, my reality. Or you could say it like this, but it's it's an upgrade. It's in the Old Testament, God takes and puts man in the middle of a garden. But now in the New Covenant, he puts the garden in man. He puts everything in us. You know, he doesn't die, as I say so often in messages, Jesus doesn't die to get us into heaven when we die. He dies to bring heaven into us because he's never separated or severed from his world, all things made by, in, through, and for him. And now he comes to take up residence within us. He's brought heaven into us. He's brought, he's brought his world into us. That should change everything about the way that I see myself. And nothing about my behavior will change ultimately unless I can see myself completely differently. And mm-hmm. once you see yourself differently, then then everything about everything, how you do, starts flowing out from that. It becomes an overflow. So righteousness now is not the things that we make up to impress God. Right. It's not the right, right works that we make up to impress God. Righteousness becomes just a byproduct of a surrendered life. So that when righteousness flows from us, it doesn't flow from a heart of arrogance or, or pride or anything like that. It doesn't. It, we can't take credit for it mm-hmm. because we didn't do it. We've just come into surrendered alignment with who he says we are. And from that vantage point, uh, righteousness flows easily. I mean, what I'm saying here may sound complicated and there's a lot of words to it, but if people grasp this, this is the, I believe this is the key to walking free from, from the sin and the struggles and those things. I struggle even as a pastor, gosh, I struggled with stuff for years and then I just chalk it up to sin nature. Mm -hmm. But, but to come into this place of surrender to that idea of that I'm one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he did that, I suddenly started seeing how certain unhealthy appetites fell away. I didn't discipline myself out of them. They just fell away. And, and I started having these, um, David says in Psalm 82, he says, my heart, my flesh cry out for you. I started realizing maybe a little bit about what David was talking about there. And that is that he had developed a physical appetite for the presence of God. It wasn't just a spiritual thing. Yeah. He had so developed like this time in the presence of God that his the time in the glory recalibrated his system to the point where he actually developed a physical appetite for the Lord. And I felt like that, that that started to become the reality for me. So wherever I go from a thousand different angles, I, I hope to bring people on a journey that will lead them there to where they develop that, that appetite for the presence of God. And I think that really is the foundation of discipleship because everything we're supposed to be doing in this, in this thing of the body of Christ isn't about, not just about believing. Yeah. It's, it's really about believing daily mm-hmm. all the time forever, you know? So does that, what does that do with the, the idea that man is inherently sinful? We're, we're born sinful. Yeah. I don't know. Or, or, I, I don't, or, or I don't are we born that. good? Like, is man inherently good? I I think I think creation mm-hmm. is is been redeemed in Christ. I think that uh, that uh, in Christ uh, we have we have this beautiful reconciliation. Uh, God was in Christ. Second Corinthians five, reconciling the world to Himself reconciling the world, the word for world is cosmos, reconciling the cosmos to himself. In that place of reconciliation, um, 
I, I, I don't see anything as evil anymore. I, I say, and let me take that back. I don't think I've ever said that phrase like that, but let me say it like this. This will make sense to it because somebody will grab that, tweet it, and go, <laughs> right. whoa, Bill doesn't see evil anymore. Um, okay, so two perspectives. One is the perspective that that Peter had. Let's grab a hold of Peter. Peter says in in um, uh, in the story of Cornelius the Centurion in Acts chapter ten, uh, Peter is so anti-Roman. He's so anti-Gentile. He won't go and hang out with these people until he gets a vision from God about all this unclean stuff coming mm-hmm. down on a sheet. Goes up, comes down, goes down, and God keeps telling him, "Don't call unclean what I've cleansed." Well, Peter's takeaway from that, his application of that little illustration there, that vision is fascinating. You see his application when he finally gets to Cornelius's house. He he basically says, okay, I'm going to go. And he gets there and, and he starts preaching. And this is what he says, one of the craziest phrases. He says, God has told me that I'm to call no man unholy or unclean. And that's Acts 10. That's Peter who who arguably doesn't really understand Paul's grace. Because in, in 2 Peter, he says, Paul writes things that are hard to understand, mm-hmm. nevertheless grow in grace. So you realize, by his own admission, he's saying, I don't understand the grace that Paul preaches, but I encourage you. Yeah, if you can get <laughs> yeah. it, go with it. <laughs> go <right>? for it. <laughs> so, but here's Peter standing in a room filled with Gentiles, and he doesn't, he doesn't like differentiate this here. He doesn't, he just says, God has shown me. And this is his takeaway from the vision that he has. God's shown me, I am to call no man unholy or unclean that is astonishing does that mean that the people are all clean and all holy no i don't think so i don't think that's the way it works i think what god is trying to do is he's trying to impact our perspective on things for example um it wasn't peter's place to go around and judge people as unholy and unclean for his perspective from and this is for me too from where i stand i see a lot of evil in the world there definitely is but i think the only time darkness threatens us is we have forgotten that we are supposed to be commissioned as the light of the world mm-hmm. right jesus said of himself i'm the light of the world then he turns to us and says you're the light of the world so when peter says i'm to call no man unholy or unclean he's basically coming to the realization i i'm i'm really not allowed to make a judgment call yeah on this um another character paul in colossians chapter 3 great example um and he says this a couple of different places, but this is the most radical, where he says there's no slave or free, Jew or Greek. And then he says this phrase, there's no barbarian or Scythian. And this is where you get the, the crazy line, uh, for Christ is all and in all. So the barbarians and Scythians are the Al-Qaeda and ISIS of, of Paul's day. The most hated, most violent people groups. Um, the most feared people groups. I mean, you just it's not the kind of people that you move into a neighborhood with, you know. And so when Paul says there's no slave or free, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no barbarian or Scythian, when he says those things, you begin to realize what he's talking about is I don't see the labels. I don't see the nationalistic um, ideologies. I don't see race. I don't see gender. I don't see. And in another place, he says um, there's no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, all are one in Christ. But when he gets to the point in Colossians where he talks about the barbarians and the Scythians, basically he's looking at, it's like looking at somebody who's a member of Al-Qaeda or ISIS and saying, yeah, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, it doesn't exist. Mm. Um, when I look at you, I see, essentially, as he's saying to these people, Christ is all and in all. In other words, this is what I see. Everywhere I look, I see Christ. I determine to know nothing among you, he says, except for Christ and him crucified. And that is essentially saying, when I look at you, I'm, I'm, I'm ripping away 
all of the costume, all the lies and labels life has placed upon you. I'm not even going to say any of that stuff. What I want to know, and this has become kind of my own personal quest too, is when I sit down to visit with somebody, talk to somebody, I look at somebody, am I judging them based upon what they present to me? Or am I asking the Father, who did you know this person to be from before the foundation of the world? So it's like God says to Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed Mm -hmm. you. Well, that means that you could be known before you knew you could be known. So then the question is, what did he know? Because what he knew, what he knows, that's who you really are. So I think really that's the entire quest of this life is to, to find out what did he know? What has he always known about me? And, and, and who does he believe that I am? Because if I can come into agreement with that, then I will truly find out who I really am. Everything else beyond that is just a guess. So people often time will say, you know, well, I want to find out who I am in Christ. No, no, in Christ is who you are, period, overdone with. In Christ transcends race, nationality, gender, and social status. That becomes the point at which we step into an identity that can't be shaken. So there's a lot of identities that we have out there. You have identities that are good. You have some identities that are not so productive. So I have a couple of good identities that I would say I've, I've uh, the identity as husband. I have the identity as father. But both of those identities, super important, wonderful, and beautiful, uh, both of those could be taken away from me due to circumstances in, in life or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, tragic, whatever that happens. And a lot of people that have that happen. If my entire identity is wrapped up in that, then who am I? So somehow we have to come to a place of being at rest in the one identity that can't be shaken, and that is in Christ. And it even deals with what I would say is is identities that, without getting too controversial, it deals with identities that I would say don't serve us well, you know, um, identities that maybe uh, that that maybe we fixate on. Let's say let. Uh, let me get. Let me just grab one. Here's here's one that's not too controversial. The identity. Let's say somebody deals drugs and then they get they get arrested and now they're a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. Well, the court says so, the law says so, and the church says that's their so. Their new you know? label, right? That's their label, mm-hmm. right? But that's not who God made. So what I need to do is I need to I need to basically say to a person, okay, drug dealer, that that is that is a temporal identity based upon an action that you took. It's based upon who you thought you were. It's based upon everybody else's assessment of you, and maybe you've come into alignment or agreement with it. But, but here's what I want to do. I want to lift, lift that off you for a second. And just let's just say in Christ. Let's just take drug dealer away. Let's just say in Christ. Now, from a posture of being in Christ, let surrender to the voice of the Lord define how you do life in this costume. No matter what identity issue that we're ever dealing with, it'll teach us actually how to live out um, like like the identity of husband or father or whatever. Mm-hmm. It'll teach us how to live out those identities as unto the Lord in a way that puts heaven on display. But if there's any identity that we're holding on to that, that being in Christ conflicts with, now I'm facing a crossroads. Like I can't hang on to this identity and in Christ at the same time. So then the question I have for people is, which one can be shaken? This one cannot. In Christ, cannot. That's not going to be shaken. That's who I am. So now I let this identity dictate how I do life here. So now that teaches me how to, how to be human, teaches me how to, uh, you know, how to be a man, how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be whatever the world says that I am right now, whatever life says that I am right now, whatever I've determined, whoever I am right now, it, that's, 
the only way I know how to be those things in a way that puts the, the love of Christ on display, that puts the freedom of heaven on display, and puts the presence of God on display, is I've got to surrender to let him guide me in this identity. What is that surrender process? How can you be saved? Like, how, how do you accept and grab that identity? Yeah, well, it's, it's Acts 4.12. There's no salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So surrendering to Christ and Christ alone. He saved me single-handedly. He saves us single-handedly. So when I lead people to Christ, I, I invite people to, to say yes to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and that means... Uh, that means stepping into, for, to me, it's stepping into a lifetime, an, a, an eternity of discipleship. Um, this is something I've been, kind of a kick I've been on lately in the last year. I've really felt just a strong pull to evangelism again, to bringing people to a place of just surrendering to say yes to Jesus. And so uh, I realized, though, that we've become kind of enamored with believing or not believing. What do you believe? What do you, everybody, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? Is that thought based on a feeling? Like societally, yeah. Like well, how, basically, how you feel about it, right, right, right. So part of it is also uh, that that I see a lot of high profile influencers in the mm-hmm. body of Christ actually just walking away from what they believed in and taking a ton of people in in their wake with them and say, hey, you know, I don't believe this anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what they're not, they're what people aren't realizing is Jesus never told us to make converts. There's never a point of conversion to 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 just come to a place. Well, I'm going to believe something new or give Jesus a shot. It's, 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 it's counting the cost and laying down your life and saying yes. It's, just, it's the point of going, when I say yes to being in Christ, I'm all in with this. I'm letting go of all of my other identities, my, especially my costume-based identities, and I'm, sur- I'm surrendering to say, Jesus, I believe in you and you alone. And you are my Lord. You are my Savior. I'm in you, you and me. I receive you just as you've received me. I'm saying yes to you just as you're saying yes to me. If, if, we, if this is a wedding ceremony, the grand wedding ceremony of the ages, and the cross is the eternal I do of heaven over humanity, he's waiting for us to say I do back so that we can begin to enjoy, enjoy the fruits of the covenant that he has determined belongs to us. I mean, it's been freely given as a gift of grace. So Christ dies once for all, but not all are responding to it. And so the invitation for all to, to, to essentially turn and say, yes, that's become uh, kind of a big deal for me because I feel like without that, uh, people, people just become, in a sense, saved purely by their belief, their own personal belief, as opposed to saying, like, um, uh, stepping into a lifestyle of discipleship. That's the deal. Is Jesus taught, teaches us to make disciples. And disciples to me are believers who've suddenly believed long enough to realize their belief is about to cost them something. Mm-hmm. And, and when belief costs you something and you still say yes, now you're in the first step of being a disciple. You know, Jesus says, uh, if you continue in my words, then you are my disciples. And the Bible says at that point, he's actually talking to the believing Jews. He's talking to believers and says, if you continue in my word, then you'll be my disciples. Well, they're already believers. What more can you be? So I realized that you can become a believer in a moment by faith, but it's going to take an entire lifetime to be a disciple. And, and I think that right now where people are falling away or I, I've got people, I have friend of my, friends of my life that are like bragging about being woke. I mean, I'm, I'm woke. <laughs> 
And well, what are you woke to? I'm, I mean, it's not just God; it's the universe, and it's it's just love. And it's like, man, they're eliminating God. They're eliminating the the persona and personality of the personal relationship with God out of it. And now it becomes this sort of like pseudo new age wokeness. But is that not centered on this idea that it's all how I feel? I must feel right ecstasy all sure. the time in order to be happy. Sure. But is I, that kind of the the stem of that concept? <laughs> I I mean I think I think you know oh man you know getting into feeling over faith yeah <laughs> yeah sure we be, we've become enamored with uh, with uh, how we feel but that's humanity I would say that's being carnal when I talked about earlier about that the formation of the soul with the combination of the breath and the, and the and the mud of earth breath of God and mud of earth that soul if we we have pictured a triangle a lot but I don't I don't think of it like that. I think of it as like spirit at the top, souls in the middle, and bodies on the bottom. And and that soul has a choice of what it wants to direct its attention toward. So if that soul that's hanging in the middle mm-hmm. is answering the appetites of the flesh, which the flesh has tons of appetites and and has a real efficient way of communicating those, you know. But if that soul directs all of its thought and its attention toward the needs of the flesh, then yeah, we do become completely mm-hmm. enamored with how we feel. I would say the spirit is kind of like this silent, you know, this silent, um, the grown up of the group, you know, <laughs> whereas the soul is like the two year old, yeah. the toddler, the spoiled toddler. And, you know, here, here we, we serve a God. We have a God who is impossible to avoid, but he's easy to ignore all at the same time. And, and the soul, that soulish realm right in the middle of spirit and flesh mm-hmm. You know, Paul said in Philippians, whatever things are true, just, good report, lovely, all that. Think on these things. So we actually get a choice of what we want to direct our attention toward. And whatever has our attention has our affection. So when we turn our attention off the things of the flesh, it's like turning a dial from facing straight down to facing, now it's facing up. Mm -hmm. And in that point, now we become, I would say, spirit-led. And there's a lot of people out there who will say they're spirit-filled. My question would be, are you spirit-led? To be spirit-filled is just, you know, I remember the time I spoke in tongues at youth camp when I was 14 right. back in the day. I must be spirit-filled. But, you know, you can have an experience with God and then ignore every moment with God after that experience for the rest of your life, thinking, well, I'm spirit-filled, but never be conscious and aware of the leading of the Spirit. So this is, the, this is to me, the part of the union thing that has really come alive to me, and that is that in union with God, I, I'm, I'm just every day feeling like this sort of, organic spontaneity uh, to, to, to just say yes to whatever moment, however he wants to interrupt my day, whatever he wants to do to mess with my plans. I, you know, I'm just, I'm wide open to the fact that he is given permission to actively mess up <laughs> yeah. my agenda. That's, that's that point of that, that being spirit led and being conscious that when he steps in to do something, my expects, my expectancy goes to a point where I'm looking for the goodness of God to manifest in this moment. Is this kind of what's being talked about in First Thessalonians when he talks about rejoice always and pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances? Is right. that the idea that 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 shift from focusing on carnal right to focusing on the spiritual and on that that God connection? Because I, I do think you're right that the thing we do consume our thoughts with becomes what we do. Yeah, and so we, I, I mean, just in life, that's what it is. If you start seeing a lot of, watching a lot of news and start reading a lot of news, what do you start doing? Yeah. Those things. And so is that kind of what they're, t- what they're talking about in that verse? 
I th- I think I think so. I think there's a lot of nuances to that verse. Uh, one of them being, you know, where it says in everything give thanks, mm-hmm. not for everything. Mm-hmm. I don't give thanks for everything that sure. happens in my life, but in everything I give thanks. And I I think when everything is when everything is threatened, stripped away, shaken, I again return back to that one thing that can't be shaken yeah. in Christ. You know, I I rest in that place of just being in Christ, learning to value the simple peace of the Lord as it comes upon you in the middle of a really you know, really difficult circumstance. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're suffering through a huge loss and you turn your attention, your affection onto the things of the Lord just long enough to just let the peace of Christ rest upon you and kind of well up within you. And you have a value for that in that moment. Yeah. You begin to realize, wait a minute. Okay. I'm, I'm, I, there's peace right here in this moment. So in everything, yeah, give thanks. I think gratitude becomes the, uh, the, the, the soil from which a fruitful life springs forth. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that pray without ceasing, constant communion, communion, communion with the Lord. That mm-hmm. can, that place of uh, where where there is no distance, there is no separation between us and God. Um, so, I, so what would a picture of that look like? An open phone line, phone connection that's yeah, constantly there. Yeah, well, I think so, and I think it's it's Jesus prayed about this in John seventeen, where he says, uh, "Father, the glory that you've given me, I give to them." Mm-hmm. And, and he's not just talking about the disciples there because he says, I pray for not for them only, but for all of those who will believe in me through their word. So when he says, Father, the glory you've given me, I give to them. He's, he's imparting something to us that's, that's really remarkable. The glory you've given me, I give to them. And this is the purpose, that they may be one. And the unity that he, he's going to define now he says that they may be one just like we are one. In other words, that they would look just like us. Mm-hmm. They would be one just like we are one. And then he goes on to break that down to find even further. He says, I and you, and he's praying to the Father, but for our benefit on our behalf. He says, I and you, you and me, and I in them perfected in unity. And then this is, and this is the clincher. This is the mission verse that a lot of people use. That the world may know that you sent me and love them just like you yeah. love me. So really when it all comes down to it, the thing of that unity really comes down to a revelation of love. It's, it's a revelation that the father loves us just as much as he loves Jesus, loves the son. It's a revelation of, I, I realize the whole point of this thing is, is that I experience and share the love of Jesus Christ. That's the entirety of this whole thing is this entire life is built on experiencing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. But I cannot give away what I don't have. And so in order for me to even begin to learn to love, it has to begin with a revelation of how loved I am by God. Yeah. Because in that impartation of love, now I just become a conduit. I'm not the source of it. I'm just a conduit. It's flowing through me. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think, I think, um, I think what Jesus prayed in John 17, of course, is so much to that prayer that's just worth just unpacking and, and, and meditating on. But that, that prayer alone, I mean, if, if all I had of the entire Bible was John 14, 15, 16, and 17, I could survive the rest of my life on that alone. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, enough, there's enough joy juice on that to, to hammer you up good for the rest <laughs> of your life. What is the process of, you know, you, know, you talk about making disciples mm-hmm. like that. That's part of the Great Commission. Yeah. Go and make disciples of all nations, I believe. Right. What does that look like? So I break it down like this. Um, 
as I travel around the United States, I realize there's four different kinds of churches that you run into, <clears throat> and they all make disciples differently. And, and typically it's because whoever we put as head of the church, mm-hmm. head of that particular church, will have, uh, uh, in the Western world, we just slap the title of pastor on everybody. We don't stop to think about the whole Ephesians 4.11 concept. And uh, you say, well, aren't there five different kinds of church if you're going to feed, you know, Ephesians 4.11? No, no, there's actually only four. Um, and the first kind of church that you run into, and I, I'll answer your question, hopefully, and <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> by doing this. <clears throat> Wait, are you a preacher? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> How can you tell? So, so the first kind of church everybody runs into is the evangelistic church. Mm-hmm. It's the loudest, the biggest, the flashiest. They want to land the plane in under an hour, which is why they're the biggest. And everything is about bringing people to a decision Numbers. for Christ. Yeah. Numbers. Oh, well, yeah. It's all about bringing people to mm-hmm. a decision. The problem is evangelistic churches, even though they're huge, they do hit a ceiling because they have a hard time retaining people. And typically the retention... Because they're this deep? You, well, yeah, I think it's because after a year you realized, hey, I just got saved 52 times in the last year. You know, but I don't, <laughs> right. I don't know any more than I did in the week, yeah. first week, you know. I, I know I know the you know pastor's wife's name and his dog's you know nicknames and you know kids mm-hmm. kids names and all this stuff and I've heard tons of illustrations about his family but I hear like one verse a week and I don't know a whole lot about the Bible so I'm kind of left to you know feast on this on my own so um eventually though you leave that people will leave that evangelistic church and they'll go on to a teaching church and the teaching church is um uh, so intellectual, they don't like to land the plane. They have a hard time ending a service. It's really a tough thing to do. After a year, everybody in the teaching church suddenly gets called to a new ministry called arguing with other people on Facebook. It's like because they know, right? You cannot let bad yeah. theology go unchallenged yep. Yep. when you're in a teaching church. So, but after after a while in that environment, mm-hmm. you start getting you know puffier in your own head, and you're like, I got to change something. So I need what am I missing? Oh, I need I need some really deep worship in the presence of God lingering times in the present. So you go to a prophetic church where I always say that you're uh, you're more likely to be injured in a worship-related accident in a prophetic <laughs> church than anywhere else, you know, hitting in the head with a flag or something like right. that. So, but as services would be That's like- a holy flag, by the way. Right, right. So yeah, services, uh, services would be like three hours long. You know, it's a marathon. Mm-hmm. And you ask somebody at a prophetic church, how was the service? And a lot of times they'll go, that was awesome. Nobody even preached. You know, and it's like- <laughs> That, speaking of that, that cracks me up. My background is very Pentecostal, and that's exactly it. We loved the services where God showed up, in quotes. And what that meant was the pastor wasn't able to preach because the worship that's kept right. going. Yeah. And then there was shouting and running about in the in the aisles. Yes. That seems contrary to what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, but the, anyway, carry the on. The evangelistic pastor yeah. and the teaching pastor are over there, like, shuddering because they're like, that's not even legal. You know, right. you can't even... You know, but I get it. I get it. I've pastored, yeah. I think, almost all of these churches at one point. But eventually, you realize, though, if the evangelistic church is focused outward mm-hmm. and the teaching church is focused inward and the prophetic church is focused upward, vertical relationship, then you're like, what am I missing? I'm missing community. Mm-hmm. And so then you get into a, a true pastor-led church, which a true pastor-led church is, is kind of like an enmeshed family. Kind of hard to get into. Um, because your presence there brings change, and change for a small group is very uncomfortable. And they'll top out typically at around 120 to 140 because that pastor has to be in everybody's Kool-Aid. He knows everything about everybody, and he's enmeshed in their lives. So it becomes a very loyal uh, congregation for a short amount of time, but then eventually people start cycling through again because what, what I think we don't realize is we have four distinct spiritual appetites, I believe, and that is 
each one of those feeds those four appetites. And this is where the answer to the question, what does it look like to disciple? The evangelist wants to win the lost. So the evangelistic church, that's their value, the lost. The teaching church, the value is the word of God. Mm-hmm. It's all about integrity to the scriptures and grounding people in the word of God. The the prophetic church, it's about the presence of God. It's all about the presence. If the, you know, if the presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go, you know. And the pastoral church, it's all about the body of Christ. Hey, the world will know we're Christians because of the love we have for one another, right. guys. We got to be united and unified, right? So it's those those four values. Now, the apostolic part of this whole thing is I believe God's raising up true the true, um, uh, I would say, leaders. The uh, Churches will constantly cycle through these four different kinds of pastors until they come into a place where they actually find a true apostolic father. And I believe a true apostolic father is somebody who has the leadership qualities to be able to take all four of these focuses pull them together into one cohesive team and get the kids to play nice together, to actually get them to work together. And that's to me where the apostolic comes into play. If we're looking at like a hand and the four being the four fingers of the hand, the apostles, the strength of the hand that holds it all together and puts, puts everybody together into into one unit um, with strength and power. So, um, so there is the room for that apostolic in there. Here's where the breakdown a lot of times happens. And, and again, to further answer the question, what does discipleship look like? Whenever I talk about this to pastors, one of the first things that they do is they say, hey, oh, we got to give everybody a spiritual gifts test and find out where everybody fits in this model. But the reality is I don't think most people fit in this model. I think more than 90% of the people sitting in our churches are not part of that five-fold ministry uh, gifting at all. Uh, because the Ephesians 4.11 that says uh, that these are gifts of Christ to equip the saints mm-hmm. for the work of the ministry. If you look at the um, the children of Israel, the 12 tribes, one out of those 12 was priests. I understand in the New Covenant, we're all priests and kings unto God. I get that positionally and, and in, terms of, in terms of who we are into Christ. I get that. But in terms of how we fit into society, how we fit into the world that we're called to live in, I think more than 90% of our, our churches are not part of that fivefold ministry gifting. In other words, I don't think they're supposed to be focused in just one of those areas. So then the question comes in, what does a healthy saint look like? And this to me is what it, what does it look like to be a disciple? So to be a, a healthy saint has an equal value for the lost, the word of God, the presence of the Lord, and the body of Christ. And to me, that's what a balanced discipleship diet looks like, is when an environment is doing its best to give people a value for those four things equally. And I think that's what causes us ultimately, if we're following the Ephesians 4.11 model to its conclusion, to, to empower, to raise up, to build up, to encourage and edify the saints for the work of the ministry, mm-hmm. for the edification of the body of Christ, so that we're all built up, we grow up into a, a, a mature man, it says, that's defined as maturity, yeah. to, and then here's the, here's the mind-melting promise, to a measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, if that's ultimately the goal, then these, then churches have to be, in a sense, fathered by apostolic figures who have value for all these. Because a person, let's say, for example, who's just an evangelist, you can tell they're just an evangelist because they all they want to do is evangelize. And at the same time <laughs> is, if you ask them, what's your big problem with the teacher over here? Mm-hmm. They'll say, well, their nose is in the book. And, and they can't even get mean about it. They can say, well, they don't have any courage. Right. They don't have any backbone. They don't have any, you know. And they're not out winning the lost. And, and so their focus is that. And they'll spend all their time making everybody else try to be like them to see how important their focus is. 
the teacher, you ask the teacher, hey, what bugs you about the evangelist? They'll say, hey, it doesn't matter how many people they win. They win 10,000 people to Christ, but they're a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. And as quick as they come in, they go out. They don't have any ruining and grounding in the scriptures. They're... Their integrity to the scriptures is so stinking thin, you know, and they can get mean about it yeah. too. So what you end up having is you have these focuses that become the identity of the church. And you can see it. I see it in churches all over the place is that evangelists, uh, evangelists are leading churches, teachers are leading churches, prophets are leading churches, pastors, pastoral care folks are leading churches, shepherds leading churches. The apostle that steps in will be the singular head, mm-hmm. right, of, of the house. In other words, they'll make the decisions that ultimately um, continue to move the church forward so it's not gridlocked. But they will be able to look at the evangelist and say, T- you, you need a teacher. Evangelist, you link up with that teacher. Evangelist, you go get them. Teacher, mm-hmm. you disciple them. Bring them into that place of the presence of God. Worshippers, you guys give them that place of the presence of God. And pastoral care people, you care and tend for their needs. And, and the true apostle is a bit of an architect, like, you know, can, can actually put these things together in a way that makes a cohesive unit. And I think that we've begun a new reformation of discipleship. And to me, churches in the, in the days ahead are going to have to adopt all four of those focuses as a part of their value system, or we're going to end up, we've, we've created a cycle of people who just bounce from church to church because, well, you know. Well, well you, you get, okay, look at it like food. Yeah. If you eat one thing all the time. How healthy are you? Right. And chances are you're going to get tired of it. Mm-hmm. But if you can have a well-balanced diet, then yeah, I, I love that analogy. I think it's great. So the question is, how do you find that kind of a leader? I think that's where, that's where discipleship over the course of time mm-hmm. produces a leader that has a, developed a value, an equal value for all of those things. And, uh, and the grace upon their life is, is such that they actually can step into that person's world. They can step into the evangelist's world. They can step into the uh, prophet's world. They can step into the pastor's world. They can step into the teacher's world. And they can be those things. I mean, Paul, I'm all things to all people that I might by all means yeah. win some. But nonetheless, within, I, I can see within our own church leadership team, within our church leadership team, we have people who have a specific grace and a specific focus. And I can tell who they are by what bugs them, like for, for like, <laughs> like, like by what, um, what produces anxiety. Mm-hmm. If I say to a teacher, I want you to close the book and I want you to get out on the streets and win the lost. Oh man, the sweat just, they, and they, and the thing is, is if I make that the spiritual giftings test for what's important to me, they feel completely invalidated and, and they, they feel like they have no place on my team. And so you'll see a lot of evangelistic churches are really thin in the teaching department because they don't value teachers. At the same time, if I say to an evangelist, I want you to get off the streets, I want you to get in here and do a 16-week study in the Gospel of Mark for a classroom full of people they are going to ask you questions every single week. Wow, the same thing. Anxiety, the sweats come. They'll be like, can I just do two weeks and then we can like take them out on the streets? I mean, it's like, so you begin to look at ultimately what creates anxiety in a person, you focus back in on their strengths, you validate that ministry, and then you look at putting these strengths together and helping people to understand that the diversity is part of our unity and celebrating that diversity is ultimately what brings us all together. So then unity is not uniformity. 
it's it's the diversity of grace and giftings where we don't all agree on everything, but we all agree on one thing, and that mm-hmm. is Christ, in Christ, period. Now, that's what we want. We want people to be in Christ. And so we take the, the grace or the focus, the metron of grace that's been given to us, and we begin to focus people in those areas. So, I mean, we find people that within our congregation that um, I think the majority of people are developing in our own house, are developing an equal value for all of those things. And then we're taking all the pressure off and saying, you guys aren't supposed to be us. Right. You're not supposed to be like this. You know, we're here to serve you, to empower you, to go out and, to, to, you know, to, to be the church. Now go out and do it, you know. And, and the pressure's off. They don't feel lesser than. They don't feel talked down to. They come to church to be empowered to do what they're called to do, and that is to be a saint. Mm-hmm. Now, that's another part of the identity, you know, <laughs> because that means they have to drop sinner yeah. as their primary identity. So people go, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, no, actually, you're a saint. <laughs> Not by your will, but yeah. by the will of God in Christ, by the power of God in Christ. So, yeah, there's a lot to it. So is there, um, I can see how that, that thought process could easily turn into a, um, everyone is predestined for heaven. Mm-hmm. Where, right. where do you fall on that concept? Yeah, so I get labeled a universalist a lot and I sound like one cause I talk about the goodness of God, but I'm not a universalist. I think God will. Um, God will honor a person's will to self-destruct. And if there was nothing to be warned uh, uh, from, he would have never given us a warning about anything. You know, so there are definitely consequences. I think for the most part, we're punished by our sins more than we're punished for our sins. So so when it says, you know, like all will, uh, you say, well, it sounds like everybody's destined to be saved. Um, I, I believe Christ has made provision for all um, to be saved, but I don't think that he forces anybody. I think he didn't, he didn't take away our ability to say no on the cross. He didn't put us in a headlock and say, you will follow mm-hmm. me and you don't have any other choice just the way it is. Um, I do think that when he's, when he's put on display and seen for as he truly is, like he's irresistible. Like it's, it's, it, I believe I, I'm, I'm hopeful about that. I'm hopeful that when people see the goodness, the grace, the glory of God upon the people of God, that, uh, that the, the gospel becomes an irresistible I, I, that's, again, that's my personal perspective. Not, not that that's true even, uh, overall, but it keeps my heart in a place of being encouraged. If I allow myself to be discouraged, then, then I, I get up with the expectation that, well, I'm going to preach and most of mm-hmm. these people are going to reject what I'm about to say. So I don't get up with that. I want to be encouraged. I want to, I want to stay encouraged all the days of my life. So, um, you know, yeah, uh, so no, I'm definitely not a universalist. Are there more than I mean, in the words of Oprah, mm-hmm. <laughs> there are multiple ways to heaven. No, I, I like. I would, are, are there other religions out there that are serving the same God? So I'm pretty narrow-minded about this by by a lot of people's standards. Um, but here's the way here's the way I see it. Uh, that's why a, you're here. <laughs> there's only there's only one way to the Father, mm. and that's through Christ. Uh, Christ alone. Nobody comes to the Father, to the Father, but by me. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He he's putting the Father on display. So, yeah, there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus, Jesus Christ. But there's a billion paths to Jesus. And uh, I heard somebody say one time that he will travel down just about any road to get to you. So. You know, I've seen that. I've seen that be the case. I don't think bypassing Jesus is a great way to have a relationship with God. 
I think, <laughs> I think, I think it's futility actually. Um, the, you know, John 10, that that where he talks about the sheepfold, he says, I'm the door of the sheep. Mm. And anybody who comes in any other way is a thief and a robber, which is interesting. And he goes in, the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, but I've come, you might have life, right? So we, we always, we always say that, well, you know, the devil comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. And we, you know, we assume that he's talking about the devil in this passage. But if you're, you know, if you're a Jew, first century Jew sitting there listening to Jesus talk, uh, and tell this story and you hear this, you're not thinking of the devil anywhere in this story. He's defined what a thief is. A thief is somebody who tries to have a relationship with God apart from Christ. In other words, you're not going through the door, which he says is him. Yeah. You're going in some other way. So you're working really hard to have a relationship with God, <laughs> but eliminating Jesus from the equation. Mm. And, and he says, essentially, that's a thief. In other words, to, to come in through a work and not to purely rely upon the grace of Christ, that will steal and kill mm-hmm. and destroy. So if you really want to like, you really want to, you know, break it down to, you know, seeing what he was saying there, essentially he's saying any religious belief system that puts the work on you mm. to have a relationship with God and doesn't purely rely upon the grace of Christ alone will steal and kill and destroy from you. So essentially he's saying religion's the thief that comes to kill and steal and destroy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I just, I don't think he came to make us religious though. I think he came to make us free. Well, it is, is religion more the process than the relationship? Would that be a really concise definition of what religion is? I don't expand on that a little more. Uh, well, I mean, religious activities. Mm-hmm. Like we have very specific order of things, order of service. We have certain things that we do in our religion. Right. Is that because it feels like religion wants to put those works, those traditions that we have. Right. First. I think, I think, yeah, yeah. I think that any activity, any activity that we crystallize around or any experience that we crystallize around. It's a weird word to use, but it's coming to mind. Any activity or work that we crystallize around can become religious. Mm. You know, for example, let's say that God shows up and I mean, I remember the Pensacola revival, powerful move of God. I was there. I was, you know, I felt it. I knew it, man. It's like, wow, this is the real deal. But uh, a girl gets up and she sings a song called Mercy Seat. People start running to the altar. So they did that at every mm. single That song meeting. became that the thing. That song became the trigger point gotcha. at which... This this is your cue to run to the altar. And it became a thing people did night after night after night. Now God used it and it built that here's what ended up happening. So everybody's like, hey, I want that song. And so now there was a there was <laughs> the a song period is of, more important than Jesus. <laughs> there was a period of time where for the revival community that became the new just as I am, mm-hmm. right? That was like that was it. That was that was the formula. And so God will let us um create I would say moments that memorialize experiences, but but if we camp out on those for very long, then we end up getting things called denominations. You know. <laughs> so I'll segue out of that. Is hell real? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think you can eliminate hell out of yeah. the, out of theology. Jesus, you know, mentions it. It's mentioned in scriptures, but it's worth a study. It's definitely worth a word study into hell. There's four different words for hell. As I'm sure you're aware of this. 
you know, you have two in the Hebrew and two in the Greek, and they all mean something very, very different. And so, uh, yeah, is, is hell real? Um, yeah, yeah, of course. What is What exactly is hell? Uh, no place anybody should even begin to touch. I mean, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dance anywhere near close to to uh, uh, to you know. Well, you know, if, if somebody's question about hell is how you know how close can I get to it without right. you know going over the edge? I mean, I, that's a foolish question to ask all the way around. I I think, um, yeah, I gotta. Wow, I've got that's more time than I think we've got to, to get into today. <laughs> but yeah, is hell real? Sure. Absolutely. And I, I think there's people that are right now in this in this world are walking around uh, in hell. Uh, in other words, they, they're walking around completely distant, separated from God in their own mind. They're an enemy of God in their mind. Ephesians talks about that we are enemies of God, but mm-hmm. in our mind. I don't think we're an enemy of God in his mind, but in ours. You know, C.S. Lewis said that the gates of hell, he believed, are locked from the inside. You know, and... Uh, uh, I just, I don't understand anybody who would willfully choose that. I don't understand anybody who would willfully want to go there except for this. I think there's a lot of people that, that have an offense toward God. And the offense towards God may be something involved. Well, you know, he's got he's to apologize to humanity for the Holocaust. Or he's got to, you know, right. apologize to humanity. Or for, to me, for, for you know... For the fact that he didn't heal, you know, right. my mom or dad had cancer or something, you know, somebody important to me, I was, was lost. Somebody, why does he let that stuff happen? And that becomes the big question to which ultimately I think, you know, Christ in us, the hope of glory is the answer yeah. that, um, there's a lot of things that we, we have allowed, you know, I believe humanity filled with the spirit of God and surrendered to the voice of the Lord and the presence of God is the answer to every problem in 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 the world it's not that we are the answer apart from him we're we're no answer without him but he in us uh has provided every solution to every question to every problem so i think what jesus says you know let um like the holy spirit he said is his desire is to guide us into all truth and if that's the case that means every answer to every question every problem is already the Holy Spirit knows the answer to it and he lives in us and we have not because we ask not so you know we let horrible things happen terrible things happen to people but uh, uh, you know Paul said it like and he suffered more than any of us I think if we look at Paul's life we could see man he's got us beat on every front when it comes to suffering yet he gets such a revelation of the glory of God he says I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us so I don't preach, I preach more about the glory, the goodness of God, the redemption of Christ than I do about hell. It's not that I don't believe in hell. Um, it, it's, it's that if I look at John's gospel and if I look at all of Paul's 13 letters, there's no focus on hell at all. It wasn't a part of the core value of their message. Uh, Paul's core message is being in Christ. That was the thing he talks about most, uh, more than anything else. John writes his gospel after he's had years to just marinate in the glory. And, um, uh, you know, he and Paul uh, lay down uh, perhaps the most exhaustive uh, revelations on the mystery of the, the goodness of God, the Holy Spirit, the grace of Christ, and being in Christ, that reconciled union. And neither one of them focus one iota on hell in either John's gospel or any of Paul's 13 letters. 
So I think I do think that one of the things that we've done in modern evangelicalism is we've made hell a core doctrine. Yeah. And the reason is is because we feel like we can motivate people through fear. And uh, and so and it's true. I, I used to be a hellfire brimstone preacher, and I could fill an altar through fear fear all day long. You you get people scared enough of God, and they they will they will choose Him because the alternative has been painted with such a black brush. Yet, what I realized in that kind of a setting is you have a lot of powerless people because fear completely disempowers a person. It's, uh, uh, you end up with a lot of Christians, and I think we, we have a nation filled with them. You, you end up with a lot of Christians who continually cry out for an outpouring that they're terrified of. Like if he actually showed up, they wouldn't <laughs> right. know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. and, and there's a fear, um, an unhealthy fear of the Lord that has gripped us. Um, in, there's two words for fear in, in Hebrew. Um, one of them is pakad, which is a fear that's objects are imagined. It's in your head. Hmm. It's not real. It's, uh, it's something, you know, it's like the fear of impending punishment. Punishment hasn't happened yet, but you fear but that it's it coming. might. Yeah. It's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God's about to drop the hammer on you. Right. But then there's the other one. Uh, the other word for fear is the word yara, which is a present tense encounter with more glory, might, majesty, power than you've ever thought possible. In other words, it's a tense issue. It's not future. It's not mm-hmm. off in the future. It's a present tense right now. I'm having an encounter with God and it's blowing my hair back. It's, it's, it's driving. It's wow. I'm, I'm, I'm undone. And so when Psalm 111 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which a lot of people quote, it's not the pacot of God. It's, it's not a fear of punishment or impending doom. It's the present tense. It's your raw. It's the pr- present mm-hmm. tense encounter with the Lord that leaves me in stunned awe. That is the birthplace of wisdom. Well, I don't get that without a reconciled union with Christ. So I think, you know, I think uh, there, there was a prophetic declaration there of here's a day coming where you're going to realize there's no distance and separation between you. You're going to be a living, walking, breathing encounter with the goodness and the glory of God. And from that place, my goodness, that's where all true wisdom springs forth. We have a lot of people that have embraced the fear of the Lord as a fear of impending punishment. And therefore, uh, and I'm not 100% sure why, but it seems like the byproduct of that is powerless believers hmm. or, or people that will go out and martyr themselves. Uh, in other words, they'll preach, they'll preach a fear-based gospel. They'll receive persecution and believe they're being persecuted for righteousness, but it's actually a self-inflicted condition. That's an interesting thought. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think if we put, I think of it like this, we've, we've spent the last 2000 years making God famous for judgment. He's supposed to be famous <laughs> for love. Yeah. And, and from that posture of making him famous for love, it's almost like we have to recalibrate people's perspective of the goodness of God, the fear of the Lord, take the focus off of, of eternal conscious torment mm-hmm. that, and that it's never, I don't think it was ever supposed to be the focus of what we were supposed to talk about. I think of the love of Christ, unveiling Jesus, seeing him for who he is, putting him on display. We're not supposed to put hell on display. The world's doing a plenty good job of that. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think, I think we're supposed to, I think we're supposed to bring people to a revelation that he's a really good father, invite them into the spirit of adoption, whereby they cry out, Abba father and bright invite people into a family. That's what God's creating. It's creating family. If God was creating something other than family. He would have never called himself father. So that's, I don't know. That's just my, that's my take on the whole nice issue. <laughs> Good work. Uh, Bill Vanderbush, you're actually in town. Today's the 12th of September. You're here to speak tonight at the Visitor Center. 
which yeah, is intriguing. Yeah, it's kind of unusual. Kind of an interesting concept. Yeah. Hmm. I I, I speak everywhere. <laughs> like Barns, <it>. conferences, <laughs> mega churches, awesome. small churches. Well, when I talked with Dan originally, mm-hmm. um, depending on the crowd, I actually <laughs> thought we'd maybe have you here. Um, but who knows? Maybe rooms, you need more people. Absolutely. You know, Sunday That's night cool. I'll be in a park somewhere. Nice. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Do you cook? I do. I love to cook. I do. I, do. I make. I make. Uh, make a mean crepe. Really? Yeah, I'm big into crepes. I like it. I actually owned a crepe shop once. Are you serious? I did. I had a crepe and coffee business. I still have the crepe makers. They're 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 under my bed at home. I think. <laughs> That's creepy. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? So I have crepe makers, you know, in my house under my bed. So what makes a good crepe? Uh, nutmeg. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's the secret ingredient to all huh. good crepes. Is a little bit of nutmeg. Well, and there's your takeaway, folks, right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Whatever, whatever he said had nothing to do. I don't know. But yeah, I'm going to go put some nutmeg in some crepe mix and see how that works. Excellent. Rolls. Well, I appreciate you coming in. I know it's kind of a, you got to roll here shortly, but thank you so much for Listen, you spent all the time asking the questions. I don't know that's the way these things go, but so, so I, I so my, my own personal question for you is, is, uh, um, where, what's your, where's your journey taking you? Uh, like where you find yourself on the journey right now? Cause we're all kind of on a journey and I'm always curious to know. Well, it's strangely, um, I grew up s- sleeping as a little kid under the sound booth chair at church. Cause my dad was the sound guy. So then I naturally grew up and took the chair from him. <laughs> and so since then I've been the, the tech person. And then as I've aged and moved around, um, I just kind of morph into that role wherever we're at. And about 11 years ago, uh, my wife and I moved here to South Dakota from Oregon. And it's kind of intriguing because in our studio here, uh, over the last 11 years of being on Main Street, or I guess 10 years on Main Street, 11 years in Millbank, um, we've kind of seen this, like our vision is kind of opened up to where we want to create an environment in our building of creativity. Mm. And so we want people to be able to come in here and cre- being creative is so broad. It means so many things. Um, I, I don't want to really put a box around that. I want to give people the opportunity to create. And if that means they need to come here and they need to learn how to make perfectly straight lines and paint little squares that are perfect, that's okay. If they want to come in and throw paint at the wall, they want to come in and learn how to talk on the radio. They want to come in and do try to do video or come in and just read. That's what I want. So to kind of create an environment where people are available or free, I guess is a better word, to really dig in and figure out what they were created to be. Because I, I, I do believe that we all have purpose. Yeah. And I, I like your thought that we need to throw off the costume. Yeah. I like that. It's kind of fun. So that, that's, that, amazing, that, that's really though. where we're at. That's amazing, Craig. You're, 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 so, so the way I see it based on your answer is that you're putting, you're putting the heart of the creator on display. You're, you're demonstrating unity. You're demonstrating that being one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is you want to bring people in to express creativity, yeah. to explore. You get to be a part of that. You're, you're, you're inviting them into your world. You're stepping yeah. into their story. You want to bring the best that you possibly can out of them. Maybe give them some hints and tips on how to, you know, and, and yet expressing this desire to, to see people free. I, 
I think all of those traits, characters, characteristics, and qualities you can find in Christ. It's fantastic. So that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. And that's this, awesome. when we built this podcast studio, the the intent was and still is that it's available to the community to wow. use. And incidentally, if you haven't been in the <laughs> studio, it's it's very it's incredible. There's tons of great mics, super high quality, you know, setup. There's a there's a multi-blocked <laughs> painting of Craig up on the wall looking like he's just letting it all out. I mean, from with his voice. <laughs> and then there's a Batman mask just randomly hanging up in here and and a lot of old barn wood that's just kind of ta- I mean, this is this is like the dream studio. So, I've just described for many of you Maybe you've Excellent. wondered, hey, what's this like? Or where, where are you guys at? You sitting in the living room somewhere? No, this this place is awesome. So if you're anywhere near Millbank, stop in. Absolutely. You heard Craig say it. Right he, on Main He's Street. opening it up and and yeah. uh, bring your creativity in. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, Please do. And and remember that we're all creative. Because, th- see, that's the thing. My wife uh, teaches pain, painting classes. And it is amazing how many people come in and, oh, I, I, I'm not creative. I don't have a creative bone in my body. Why not? Well, when I was seven, the art teacher told me that I should probably not do art because I wasn't very good. It is amazing how many people have that story that they, in school, they were told, yeah, that's probably not for you. So you probably should think about something else. Well, that was that was my wife, Tracy. Really? And now she writes children's books. Well, how about that? But it took a while to, 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 to take the stigma of that, mm-hmm. that label off that you are not. Totally. You know, it's like we define ourselves so often by I am not mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, who we who we actually are. That's, yeah. That's amazing. So, I love awesome. that you're doing that. I, like I love it. that you're pulling the labels off of people. We're trying. Come on. This is the interview from the YML Blink Podcast Network. Um, again, Bill, thank you so much for coming in. I've, I've looked forward to this. When we talked about doing this, I was excited about sitting down with you and getting to know you a little bit. So thanks a lot for coming in. Thank you very much. Anytime you're back, I'd love to sit down again. Quietmillblank.com is the website. The interview, Quietmillblank Podcast Network. I'm Craig Weinberg. Thanks again for sitting down. Uh, If you're looking for Bill Vanderbush, you can find him on the interweb at billvanderbush.com. He's got a lot of, he has his own podcast, actually, that he does from an extremely high-tech podcast studio. But just so you know, it's fantastic. (laughs) My dodge. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) But there is a lot of resources that you have. There are a lot of resources you have on your website. There's a few things Um, out there, yeah. A lot of stuff on YouTube, a lot of stuff online. So if people actually want to stop in celebration and go to your church, um, how often are you there? I'm there about half the time. Most most every Sunday night, I'll be there. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot for listening. Have a wonderful day.